There's no way out I've got to show them what I've become There's no doubt Got my back to the wall And I'm still hanging on There's no way Troubles in my life have been in the same With a strain in my mind getting hurt again There's a pain in my heart but it's just a game Gotta get over it, won't go insane Won't achieve anything while I'm down Don't wanna give out my heavy weighted frown I'm stopping this now, I'ma turn it around Heaven's on the ground, now I'm looking at the clouds Gonna make a change like a change, bigger getting changed Gonna stay the same with my mind frame rearranged Gonna wash the blue out my mind and my eyes Was I blind in my mind? Cause that was old times Cause I'm starting fresh with a clear vision You can even spell my name in optimism Just track the M's and I and the P And then what you're left with is me Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to tonight's episode of the Zod Ryder Show. I am Zod Ryder, and with me, as always, is my great co-host, Victoria Runer. How are you, Victoria? I'm great. How are you? Oh, I'm fantastic. I'm just trying to stay warm. <laughs> Same <laughs> with you. you. Are you warmed up? <laughs> I'm trying. I'm I, trying. Hey, uh, hey, hey I, mean... I know it's going to be a super, super hot show tonight. We, we have none, none other than the Batman himself on the show tonight, so... I'm excited. We're we're in good shape, Mr. Wyatt Weed and producer Gail Gallagher. We got them both tonight on the Zod Rider Show. I'm super excited to have you guys. You guys are awesome. Welcome. Yes. Thank hey, you, yes. sir. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. This is this this is incredible. Uh, for those listening that don't know who you are, you were you had uh, made a little film a couple years ago called Four Color Eulogy, and we did a. a a podcast to celebrate that that film and to talk about it and everything and it's so funny that we did all that because I, we still haven't seen the film so it's <laughs> it's it's pretty ama- pretty amazing before we part ways tonight we'll have to get your your address and uh, send you a copy of that we're uh, we're still working on doing a couple of um uh theatrical screenings of the film and then we'll be releasing to DVD I, I, and online. Yeah, I'm still super, super excited. This is it's yes. A, it's going to be a good movie. I mean, we, I mean, you talked about it from top to bottom, and I felt like I knew the movie. I still haven't seen it yet. And I'm like, oh man, this is terrible. This is crazy. Was Jason supposed to send you a copy? We'll have to give him some trouble about that. Was he? I, yeah, I, I, I don't know. He's yeah, not it's here. Just, it's Jason's fault. It's Jason's Cause fault. Jason, <laughs> no, because I, I was, I was, uh, was bugging Jason a lot the last time uh, you guys were here over, um, over the anniversary because that's also – Oh, know, yeah. Uh, that's a really, good, a really good little film that he was in. And I, I, I happen to love that film so much, and it's great. And I ended up – I had a copy of it when uh, John Campia had released it to the Internet – several years back and i had a copy of it and i recently had a hard drive that had the movie on it that died so now i no Um, longer i no longer have the movie so 
So I took my, so I took my, uh, you know, frustrations over to John Campion himself. He was doing one of those Q and A's that he does from his, from his house. And I, so when he did the camp, the Q and A, I asked him the question. I said, when is uh, the anniversary going to get a modern day digital or DVD release? And he told me straight out that he doesn't really want to spend the money to bring the film back oh, out. I guess no. he made I guess he made his money off of the film initially when he released it online a few years back, and he doesn't really want to you know do it to go through it to put it on DVD or whatever. And he talked you about know, how I, he really didn't really he really doesn't think that the film is all that good in comparison to other films. So he's kind of like not. And I don't know. I just feel like that's the wrong way to look at it entirely, guys, because. It's a good little film, and yes. you know you gotta you gotta appreciate the small independent films. Those are a part of our culture just as much as say you know Star Wars or Jurassic Park or some of the really big franchises that we know of in in life today. So I just, I agree with you. I think I think um, the anniversary was a was a you know I hate to say the word cute, but it was it was a cute little film. I thought Jason was great in it. Um, I actually sat down with Jason and John in Los Angeles a few years ago, and I was trying to talk to John about distribution and I respect, you know, I think he just kind of felt like it was going to be a whole lot of effort for not a lot of reward. And trust me, I know what he's talking about where you've made this, this project, but to get it out there and to get it in front of an audience, it's going to be so much work and the rewards are ultimately going to be kind of small financially. Um, But I I agree with you that, you know, you got to love these things like children I mean, you got to raise them and nurture them and you got to love them for all their flaws and all their good points. And then you, you have to send them out into the world and see what they'll do. And um, I've known some people and I'm not, I'm not inferring or referring to anyone specific, but I've known some people who've made some horrible films and have had some great success with them because they get out there and they push and sell and show them and they still make a name for themselves. And it still opens up doorways, even when they're not good films, it's, it's really amazing what you can. Well, well, what you can I, well see, this is that. This was my biggest problem. See, he did that Q and A, and there was, and he had like pre-recorded it, and there was really no way to um, uh-huh. inter- interject on the Q and A because I actually wanted to say, well, you know, John, this is a really good film. I mean, it means a lot to me, and it means a lot to the people that I know because I've watched this movie with at least six other people, and oh, we wow. all. We all can, all of the people that have, I've watched this film with can relate to it in some way. So we got to get you a copy of Four Color Eulogy. You will, I think you'll feel the yes. same way as Four Color. I, Absolutely. I, I do. I, I do. I already know I'm going to feel that way because you guys, a lot of the stuff that you said in the last interview that you, you did for me, you, you, when you came on, you, I mean, it was amazing. All the stuff you were saying, I literally was thinking, my God, I cannot wait till this film comes out. <laughs> and I'm already, and I'm already. Patient. Yeah, and I'm such a. We should tell the audience that um, Four Color Eulogy and Dark Knight Returns, very, very, very different movies. You know, if if you've seen Dark Knight Returns, please go try and find Four Color Eulogy when it gets released. Watch it, but understand Four Color Eulogy, very different movie than Dark Knight Returns. Absolutely different. Oh, yeah. So, well, we, just, well, yeah. the, well, that's that's one of the things that. that sh- that shocked me, although I shouldn't be shocked considering the kind of fan you are and con- considering all the stuff that you've, that you've, you know, posted about in the past and projects you've been working on. I, 
but yeah, I'm really I was really surprised to see to see that come from you, Wyatt. But I'm not. <laughs> but I'm not. I'm not like. <laughs> Uh, you know, you know, it doesn't. I was pleasantly surprised. I mean, you know, you know, you, you know, a lot of the stuff that was that was interesting. You know, I, I had heard you. You, I guess, you were interviewed on another show not too long ago. I think, I think it was actually. I listened to it while I was at work the day uh, you guys released the Dark Knight Returns online. You had an interview mm-hmm. somewhere, and I remember you talking a lot about Sandy Colera and Dead End. Yeah. And yeah, and, and, mm-hmm. and I mean, how you guys were how you guys were friends, and how he showed up at your at your theatrical yeah. premiere of the movie, and blew thought, my doors off. I could not believe when he walked up to me. I, I thought I was hallucinating because I hadn't seen him in a couple of years. We were communicating through Facebook, um, but yeah, when he walked up at the screening, I just I, I, my jaw hit the floor. He said it was worth the price of the plane ticket to see the expression on my face when he walked up. Um, but Sandy's one of the first people that I showed early bits of Dark Knight Returns to because I kind of wanted his feedback. And I also I, I wanted him to be aware of it. I didn't want because he was a friend. I didn't want him to be blindsided, like because he's so well known for Dead End. I didn't want people walking up to him out of the blue and going, so what do you think about, you know, why it's Batman film? And I didn't want him to be caught with his pants down. I wanted him to be aware of it and, and be able to go. Oh yeah, I know about that. I I I gave him tips, man. I he and I talked about it. You know, I wanted him to be in on the ground floor. I didn't want him to be uh, blindsided by it, because not to sound cocky, I just I was hoping it was going to be good. I was hoping it was going to cause a splash, and if it did, I, I figured people would start seeking him out and getting his opinion. So yeah, so I, I felt like I owed it to him to 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 kind of keep him involved and, and keep him informed as to what the progress was. So. So what, I mean, he, so when he came and in, like you said, he, he was, he was excited and it was the price of admission just to see you smile about it. What was his, what was his reaction overall? Did he, and did he enjoy the film as much as, as much as I did? I mean, I really want to know because I was <laughs> he really seemed to, um, he really seemed to enjoy it. Um, I think, you know, it's tough. I'll be honest. It's tough when you're a filmmaker because you know what's involved. And I, I have no doubt that Sandy probably saw things in the film and thought, well, I would have done that different. Or, well, and, I, and I told Sandy straight up. I was like, man, there's stuff in the film that I wish I could do better. There's stuff in the film that's a little cheesy. You'll know what these things are. And I think because he knows I'm aware of what those things are, he's never really come to me with a laundry list. Like, he and I both did feature films and we like swapped films. He did Hunter Prey and I did a film called Shadowland, which was a vampire film. I can, and those I were, can, those were our first features. I could say, with, so I could say with wholehearted honesty that I've seen both of those films and I, and I, that's love, awesome. and I love both of them. They're both very good movies. So that's awesome. So yeah, anybody you. out there who has not seen those films, it's, and that you need to you need to seek them out now. Both of them are very very good, very, very well. So we swapped films. We swapped films, and then we sort of had a, a critique phone call where we talked back and forth, and we both liked each other's films, but we both sort of like talked about what we liked and what we didn't like. So we sort of you know we just sort of uh, you know sort of poked and prodded each other on those two films. On the Batman films, though, I think because they're of a very different nature. Um, like I say, he knows what I know is wrong, and 
I think he just really enjoyed the film. I think he really appreciated the effort I put into keeping it true to the comic. But also he, he said something interesting, which is that I, I think, um, I think one of these days you're going to see Sandy do some more acting. Cause I think Sandy's, Sandy's a, a designer and a sculptor and a filmmaker, but Sandy's a pretty good little actor. And, uh, I think Sandy would love to do some acting in some films. And I wouldn't be surprised if you see him do that in the future, because I think one of the things he enjoyed was seeing me step into the part. And I think it just made him, you know, I think it just gave him a giggle to see this guy that he'd known for all these years, you know, play Batman. And I think that, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if you see Sandy, you know, pull a part out in the future and do something and cast himself in it. And, and I think he'd be great at it. I think he'd be really good. So, so hopefully, you know, hopefully I gave him a little shot in the arm and said, okay, Sandy, you know, you're tough. You're a filmmaker. You're, you're in good physical shape. Go, go, go do a part in a movie, man. Go do it. And I think he will. So that's, that's really cool. And now, and I mean, now that you've played Batman, you should have a very interesting perspective because that's quite a part. I mean, what is it like to play Batman? Yes, exactly. You know, it's, Here's here's the progression, just so you guys know. Um, if I had a time machine and millions of dollars, the guy to play the Dark Knight Returns from Frank Miller's comics, in my opinion, is a 55-year-old Clint Eastwood. You think of Clint Eastwood in the mid-'80s, you think of like Heartbreak Ridge and films like that. I think Clint Eastwood is, he is kind of the, the spitting image of what Frank Miller imagined. Um, but you know, Eastwood's not 55 anymore and I don't have access to him. So I kind of thought around, I I thought about the actors in the St. Louis area and I thought about who might be good as Bruce Wayne Batman. And there's some really good actors here. And some of them are kind of close to the range, um, of the age, but nobody was really, really coming to mind. And I'm an actor myself. I've done it off and on over the years. And, you know, when I was a 22-year-old kid, I read The Dark Knight Returns, and I wanted to make the film even back then, but I had no delusions about playing Bruce Wayne. I, I just, I was too young and gangly and gawky to do it. But as I got older, and as I started really seriously thinking about finally doing this film, I was approaching my early 50s, and I thought, well, hell, I'm, I'm the good age to do it now. I'm probably a little more seasoned and I know a little bit more about life. I think I can lend this part the gravity that it needs. But what was interesting was there's two sides of it. There's Bruce Wayne and there's Batman. To me, Bruce Wayne was easy. To me, Bruce Wayne was like, this guy's a billionaire. He doesn't have a problem or a worry in the world. Yeah, you can relate to all that, huh? Well, no, it's just... (laughs) I figure a guy who's got billions of dollars, the world is his oyster. He doesn't worry about where his next meal's coming from. He doesn't worry about if his car breaks down. He's not worried about paying the rent. All he literally does is he walks around Gotham concerned about the city, worrying about crime, keeping an eye on Gordon. So to me, Bruce Wayne was easy. The world is his oyster. Gotham City is his. He's, he's not afraid of anybody. He's not afraid to walk the town at night. Bruce Wayne just has this inner confidence and he's just sort of lost in his own thoughts. And he's just, you know, he's, he's in a good solid place. Batman was the one that I was worried about because I didn't want to come at it as just mean and growling, just all brute force and anger. I just, that, I just didn't think that was the way to play him. Um, But I was concerned that 
I thought, God, where, where am I going to find the kind of inner rage to play that sort of part and then be able to control it? And so I was sort of playing with how to do Batman. And one day we were on production on another project and everything was going wrong and nobody was listening and nobody was returning phone calls and people weren't reading emails and people were screwing stuff up. And I just started getting madder and madder and madder. And I just popped and I started, I just started ranting. I rant to Gail. Like occasionally I just snap and I'm just like, how, how hard is it? To return a damn phone call, how hard is it to just take the job and do the job? And I just went off. And like when I settled down, I was like, "Oh wait a second, I have I have the anger to play Batman. I can, <laughs> I can channel this. I can channel this." But that's the trick with Batman is it's a controlled anger. He's he's angry, he's forceful, he's determined, but with rare exception, he never loses it and goes over into the point of murderous rage. So, you know, I spent a lot of time getting ready for Batman scenes by just sort of sitting there for a second and just sort of, you know, boiling over a little bit and just concentrating on the heat and concentrating on the fierceness and, you know, looking at whoever the other actor was and, you know, asking myself why I wanted to take this guy down. And then, you know, boom, we'd start rolling. So um, and I was hoping I that I got in the split personality aspect, which is that. You know, Batman is as screwed up as a lot of those other superhero uh, villains are. He's just figured out a good way to channel it. You know, uh, one one other bad boarding school and one more case of abuse, and Batman probably would have been just a horrible, horrible supervillain. And luckily, he came down on the right side of it, and he he managed to channel all that craziness for good. So you've also talked to me about the age aspect of playing this role mm-hmm. at this point in your life. Yeah, it's it's interesting because at 52 now, I was 50 when I wrote it, 51 when we started shooting, and I'm 52 now. Um, it's hard enough to get in shape. It's hard enough to do, you know, 15, 18-hour shooting days and direct and shoot and act. Um, I can't imagine doing this older. I mean, I'm talking about doing more movies now, but my God, I can't imagine doing this a whole lot longer because it's just it's physically tough. Okay, so, it's so really I, I'm sorry to cut you off, but I, wow. I have to ask at this point then the physical demands of playing the character. Does that mean that the chances are slim that you will adapt the entire graphic novel at this point? Wait, let me let me jump go in ahead, here go for ahead, a second. Go ahead, go ahead. So for the whole two years that we've been working on on this film, why it's this was kind of Wyatt's dream. I want to do this book and get it out of my system. It's something I've wanted to do for 30 years. I'm so excited about this. And whew, okay, we're done. Let's set it out there to the to the <laughs> world to see. And the feedback that he's been getting from the fans who are, are commenting on YouTube, one person after another is like, give us more. Where's part two? What's the next one? So they've, they're kind of wearing him down now. Well, it's like, um, you know, it's like a woman who's had a child and, you know, she's laying there in the recovery room and she gave birth five hours ago and somebody walks in and goes, hey, you want to have another kid? And she's like, hell no, I don't want to have another kid. But, you know, she heals up and the kid starts to grow up and she finishes nursing and, you know, a year goes by and she goes, yeah, I'd like to have another kid. It's like when they interviewed uh, Daniel Craig, he got a lot of flack after Skyfall. Because I guess 
Skyfall was finished and he was at the premiere and they said, are you going to do another one? And he's like, hell no, I'm not doing another one. Well, you ask, you ask an actor, uh, after doing, you know, working a year straight on a film that difficult, of course he's going to say no. But give him some time and perspective. He's already said, okay, I've had some uh, some time to recover. And I feel the same way. Um, the response has been so good. The fans have been so positive. And I guess I never really thought about moving forward from here. And in the few weeks since we've released the film, I have thought about how I would approach it. And I've thought how I would tackle it. How many, how many more parts I'd need to do, what would be involved. Um, so now I'm seriously thinking about it, and I think it would be fun. I've already talked to some of the production people um, about how to approach it, and we've got some ideas and attack plan on how to do it. Um, there's some scheduling issues. Uh, Jason Contini, um, who we've been talking about up to now, who was co-writer of Four Color Eulogy, an actor in Four Color Eulogy, he was one of the stars of Shadowland. He was in the anniversary. Um, Jason wants to direct a film and he and Nick Kern have written a script called retribution. And that's a Western. And Jason wants to shoot retribution in 2017. So we're already working on the script for retribution. We're starting to prep the movie. Um, so we're talking about shooting the Western later this in 2017. So 2017 is called for. I mean, 2017 is is retribution. We're doing Jason's Western. But I'm thinking maybe 2018, 2019, 2020. Uh, but you're going to be older then. <laughs> well, that's... Oh, <laughs> you know what, though? I figure if it's sections like that, here's the plan. Here's what I've thought of. And it's, okay. it's so obvious, I don't even know why I didn't think of it. I did The Dark Knight Returns, and I called it The Dark Knight Returns. The next story would basically be Batman taking on the mutant gang. And that story would uh, would introduce Carrie Kelly fully as Robin. Um, Batman would get his ass kicked. Then he'd go back and take out mutant leader. And that one would be called uh, Dark Knight Triumphant. The third film would be basically Joker escaping, um, you know, killing all the people in the TV studio, Batman pursuing and taking out the Joker, the showdown in the tunnel of love. And we'd introduce uh, Superman and we'd, we'd show Superman fighting the war over in Cordo Maltese and all the political stuff building up. And that one would be called um, hunt the dark Knight. And then the fourth and final film I would do would of course be, you know, the missile exploding Gotham city blacking out Batman rallying the sons of the Batman to help him calm the city and then Batman coming and trying to take out, I'm sorry, Superman coming and trying to take out Batman. And then of course the final Batman Superman fight. And that one would be called the dark Knight falls. So I'm talking about doing three more films, probably each as ambitious as what this one is. Um, the producer in me keeps seeing the budget getting <laughs> oh, much. Wow. <laughs> well, well, yeah, that, that, and the fact well, and, that, and what, it, what kind of, no, go I'm ahead. Sorry, Victoria. go ahead. That's okay. Victoria. No, I was just saying, what kind of timeline are you thinking about this? Because that is that is a heck of a lot of work, and how many years are we going to be well, talking I've about? Been, one of the things that I've already talked to crew people about. There's a there's a man who works with us. He he actually he owns Pirate Pictures, really, um, and his name is Bob Clark. And Bob Clark was uh, one of the producers. Well, he was the producer behind the executive producer behind Shadowland. He was one of the producers and one of the the tech crew on four color eulogy 
And Bob Clark was like my right hand guy as far as like lighting and technical stuff went on the Dark Knight Returns. And Bob has already expressed interest in doing more. He loved doing Dark Knight Returns. He had a lot of fun with the lighting and doing, you know, this, this exaggerated visual style. But the one thing Bob expressed interest in was let's shoot bigger chunks faster. One of the problems with Dark Knight Returns is, you know, I'm asking people to come out for free. And so you're trying to, you play in this puzzle game where you're, you're getting all the actors together when they're available. And then you're trying to find the time that the locations are available and the times that the crew people are available. So you're asking people to come out and do this for free. If you're doing a five or 10 minute long short film, you could probably tackle something like that in a long weekend because I was doing such an epic project. It was like 45 minutes long. We had 24 shooting days. So some of those days we had eight or nine actors and then we had multiple crew people. So to get everyone scheduled to line up, because these people all have day jobs, they're actors working in plays. Some of them are musicians. So they've got weekend gigs playing, you know, playing music. So that's one of the reasons why it took so damn long. If we go into making more films, I would sit down with like the mutants or the actor playing mutant leader. And I'd say, look, I want to shoot the fights over like a four day period. Can you be available for four days? And then we can speed up the process, you know, get, get the actors playing Carrie Kelly, shoot all of her scenes at once so that we can do it in uh, bigger chunks, um, a little, little bit more efficiently and get it done. Timeline. I'd love to do dark Knight triumphant in 2018. I'd love to do um, hunt the dark Knight in 2019. And I'd love to do dark Knight falls in 2020. I don't know if I'll be able to accomplish it, but that's, and this is me just, you know, Dark Knight Returns hasn't even been out three weeks. This is me just making notes on a piece of paper. This is me just spitballing. And all of this has come about since yeah. we released it three weeks ago. But, you know, I've already done Dark Knight Returns. It doesn't get a whole lot scarier. Um, <laughs> you know, there's there's a couple of big scenes, but that's one of the things about Dark Knight Returns is we, th- we had impossible things to accomplish and we just kind of worked the problem until we figured out how to make it happen. I tell you, nothing was more daunting than that opening racetrack scene in Dark Knight Returns. When I wrote the script from the comic, I had no idea how we were going to pull that off. I, I mean, I didn't know if it was going to be real race cars. I didn't know if it was going to be miniatures. I didn't know if it was going to be CGI. I just knew it had to open on the racetrack because that's how the comic opened. And... Ultimately, Gail met a woman who was involved with the Sports Car Club of America. She was involved in racing events at this racetrack over in Illinois. One thing led to another. We got to meet a race car driver with a car he was willing to let us use as Bruce Wayne's car. And then, boom, we were on an actual racetrack shooting an actual race car going 150 miles an hour. And Everything was kind of downhill from there. Once we got the racetrack scene done, it was like, oh, I can do all the rest of this stuff in my sleep. But I had no idea how the hell we were going to do that race car scene. And it truly, truly is amazing what you can get if you ask for it. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. every location in this movie, we didn't pay for any locations. Um, we filmed wow. in an aban- We filmed in an abandoned shopping mall. We filmed yeah. at the racetrack. We got that gorgeous event space that we used as Wayne Manor. Yeah. Um, yeah. So 
and people were just excited about working with us on this. It was, it's also amazing how many comic book fans are out there. Once you get talking to people, it's like, Oh, the, well, the race car driver. Yeah. They were excited to have their, their car featured in a Batman movie. We work with executives. We do video production to like our normal gig is like commercial and corporate video work. And we'll work with like big executives at like big high powered companies and interviewing these, these CEOs and stuff. And, you know, we'll get to chatting afterwards and they'll be like, well, what are you doing? What do you, what do you do for fun? And I'm like, well, I'm working on this Batman film. And these executives will be like, Batman. Oh my God. I love Batman. What are you doing? I'm like, I'm doing the dark Knight returns, you know, the dark Knight Returns. Oh my God. I love the dark Knight. Yes. I love the dark. Send me a link to that when it's done. It's amazing. <laughs> who would get involved and who would get excited about it. So, I mean, and we, we discovered the dark Knight returns. It's kind of crossing generations because we've worked in high schools recently where the high school students know yeah. what it is. We've worked with older executives who know what it is. Um, women know what it is. I mean, not a lot of women, but women know the dark Knight returns. It, it, the dark Knight returns really cut across a lot of cultural lines. And I think, the Dark Knight Returns is different things to different people. To some people, it's action. To some people, it's political commentary. To some people, it's social satire. To some people, it's just cool artwork. Um, it, it really kind of depends on who you are. So, And like I said, we could go on for hours and hours and hours about this stuff. You'll have to jump in and tell us to shut up because you've got more questions. Well, that's, that's, that's okay. You know, The, the no. listeners want to hear want to hear everything that you have to say about it. That's one of the great things about this show. Everybody mm. has a voice, and I want to make sure that everything is is out there for people to hear. So, sure. so I mean, that, sure. it's perfect that you can talk about that. Can, can you talk a little bit? You mentioned earlier about uh, the locations and how you were able to get the locations for free by just asking. Were there any mm -hmm. challenges whatsoever as far as acquiring the locations, or was it pretty – pretty easy overall you know maybe not acquiring i don't think any of the ones that we actually found and said oh hey this is what we want the challenge wasn't there the real challenge for you was finding the bat cave wasn't it well the bat cave was a big challenge and there were here were the compromises here's for as ambitious as the film was and for the things that i think worked there were certain things that we didn't do like the comic because for example, the the arcade where we first meet Carrie Kelly and the mutant gang is about to assault her and Batman takes out the mutants. Um, that, in, in my impression of that in the comic book, it was kind of like a Jersey Shore, boardwalk, Coney Island kind of place. There really isn't anything like that in St. Louis. There's a couple of places. Uh, there's a place here called Forest Park, and Forest Park here is has been here since the 1800s. Forest Park is famous for the 1904 World's Fair. And there's these big, huge, beautiful buildings still in Forest Park with these big stone archways. And that was the closest thing that I could find to what looked like the arcade in the comic. Now, we could have shot there. They were game. They were willing. They weren't going to give it to us. They were going to charge us. And they weren't even going to charge that much but I just couldn't justify spending more money than I had to on a fan film that I knew I couldn't profit from. I mean, other than notoriety and, you know, getting to do stuff like the Zod Rider show, um, <laughs> I knew I wasn't, I, I knew I wasn't going to profit from this thing. So even if they were saying, well, you can have this location for $500 a day, 
that's an awesome deal, $500 a day. It still wasn't in our it's budget. It's an awesome deal so, if, you're, if you're doing your own yeah. film that's not, that's not Batman. There you go. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So, so things like that. So, so we made compromises, and we ended up in an abandoned mall instead. Now, the abandoned mall was awesome. Creepy, cool, amazing. Epic. I mean, this mall, this mall had to be a quarter of a mile long. It was massive, and we went to the woman who managed it, Pam Wucher of Urban Street Group out of Chicago. Um, we went to Pam and said, Pam, we want to shoot a Batman film in your abandoned mall. And Pam thought about it for a few seconds. And she came back and said, you know, we're just going to tear it down next year. So I don't see why not. And that's the kind of cool cooperation that we were getting from people. Um, and she handed us the keys and said, I'll see you in a couple of days. Now, before oh, I started, wow. yeah, it was yeah. really, really astonishing. I mean, we private pictures literally had, the keys to a mall in St. Louis for like a four day weekend in, in late 2015. It was amazing. Um, but before I get into the bat cave, um, one of the things I want to stress to filmmakers and people out there listening is uh, as much as we cut corners and as much as we, you know, begged, borrowed and stole to make this movie, we played things safe and we had production insurance. Yeah. Um, we spent a few hundred dollars and we got a production policy to cover things like being in the mall. Um, when we went into the event space for Wayne Manor, uh, you know, it was this beautiful old building from the 1920s in case we damaged anything, in case somebody got hurt. So that is one of the things we ponied up for money-wise was insurance. And when we were doing fight scenes and we were doing anything resembling a stunt, all the car chase stuff near the end of the film, we were very, very careful about that stuff. And that comes from a lot of my experience in Hollywood and seeing how the big guys do it and how the big guys do things safely. So you're able to adapt that stuff over. But we, we weren't just idiots, you know, racing down the street in cars without any permissions or without the police knowing or without any safety safety factors involved. We, we, we took really good care to, to make sure that people didn't get hurt. And, and we're proactive about stuff like that. So like that car chase, we had a, a f car that we doctored up to look like a police vehicle. So we made sure that we called the local police a couple of days before, said, hey, just want to let you know, we're going to be filming in this one area. We've got a car that looks like a police car. We're going to have some guys with some plastic guns. We just wanted to let you know in case, you know, one of the neighbors sees this going on and gives you guys a call. And then we call them the morning of, and then we call them an hour before we're going to film because there's been a shift change at some point. You know there has. And somebody's going to not tell somebody else what's going on. So from experience, we've learned to be very proactive about that kind of stuff. And the insurance as well, that if you go to a location and you're asking to borrow a space, but you are able to preemptively say, oh, and by the way, we've got an insurance policy that will make sure that, that you're covered on. It tends to make the, the owners of locations feel a lot more comfortable and you come across as a lot more professional and knowing what you're doing. Because even if they don't know to ask for the insurance policy, if you've got it, it's good. I think one of the things about the locations that was really important to me too, um, with all respect to a lot of the, the fan films I've seen over the years, it seems like a lot of times you see a fan film that's got some really good elements, but clearly somebody had a cool warehouse. So it's a 15 minute long fan film that takes place in a warehouse. 
and that's it. It's like 15 minutes in a warehouse. Or somebody had a cool alley somewhere. So it's a Batman fight scene set in an alley, and that's the whole film right there. Um, well, even Sandy's film, which Sandy's film was only eight minutes long, but Sandy's film essentially takes place in a couple of alleys. And, and that was probably a very smart economical move on his part. Do it in some alleyways um, makes his life a little simpler. But what I didn't want to do was shoot in like one or two locations and then try and stretch my movie across all these locations. I wanted to have the locations that are in the comic book. I wanted a television studio. I wanted a racetrack. I wanted Wayne Manor. I wanted different deserted streets and alleys. I wanted a police station. You know, I wanted, uh, the, you know, the, I wanted all these different things and I wanted them to stand out and be very defined. So there was a lot of effort putting, put into finding these locations. Gail mentioned the bat cave. The bat cave was one of the most difficult things just because, you know, it's the bat cave. Ideally you want to find a cave or you want to build a set, but we couldn't build a set. Um, there are caves. There's a lot of caves in the Missouri area, interesting enough, but they're not really the type of thing that you can go into and shoot in very easily. And again, there's the money factor. So I started thinking if I can find a set of stairs that like come out of nowhere and go to nowhere, I can shoot the scene on the stairs and then I can add in the cave using special effects. So if I can get a set of stairs against blackness, I can put in the cave beyond in the black void. Well, think about that. Where do you find a big flight of stairs coming out of nowhere and going to nowhere? It's just, it's a hard, hard thing to do. And you think... Especially when you're kind of looking for kind of an industrial type staircase. Yeah. We found this one location at an old university here in town. And it was like old stones and archways. And it was like the bottom edge of a building. And you came out of this underground passageway. And you went down this flight of stairs. And it looked like it could have been the bottom of Wayne Manor. And like... Somebody went through a basement door in Wayne Manor and then dug a hole into the Bat Cave, and it would have been amazing. And we got about halfway through that process when the religious board of this very religious school basically said, "No, no Batman film here. We're not doing a Batman film here." Oh. So I don't think it was really a Batman. I don't think it was a bias against Batman. I think it was they just didn't want any filming. That's what I was just going to ask. Who doesn't like Batman? I mean, come on. Yeah, it, <laughs> yeah no, find someone. Our contact at the school, our contact loved the idea, tried to push it through, and then when the board met, the board was like, no, no Batman, not at our school. So then I just, I kept looking and I kept looking, and about, a, I guess it was probably December of 2015, it was about a year ago now, we were shooting at this place here in St. Louis. We were filming interviews. It was the Jewish Community Center. And they had a water park out in back behind the community center. But it was December, so the water park was all closed up. We had a break in between interviews. And I'm walking back and forth down the hallways, just stretching my legs. And I look out the back window over this closed water park. And here's the big, huge, circular water slide out in the middle of the water park. And coming off the side of the water slide is this enormous, like, three-story tall, gray industrial staircase coming off the top of the water slide and going down and doing a hard-angle turn and basically ending in a cement base. And I can just visualize this where the, the beam of light comes from the sky and lights up this staircase in your mind. It's like, whoa! 
So this sort of like came together in front of me in like 30 seconds. I'm like looking out the window, looking at the staircase. And I'm like, well, if I shoot this way, I won't see the water slide. If we shoot this direction, it'll be nighttime sky behind us. So there'll be nothing but blackness behind us. And oh my God. And within like five minutes, I had contacted the woman who managed the, uh, the, the Jewish community center. And she signed off and said, cool. And the following week we were there on one very, very cold night shooting the scene with Alfred and Batman or Alfred and Bruce on the staircase. Um, so literally the staircase and the cement ground at the bottom of the staircase was real. Nothing else was. The, oh, the wow. So the T-Rex was obviously a T-Rex, the cave, everything was, you added it after? Yep. The only thing that was real was the immediate staircase that we were standing on. The, the cave was all photographs of famous caves. The T-Rex was a modified um, toy T-Rex. Um, I have a 118th scale die-cast metal 66 Batmobile that was photographed, and that was dropped in. And then there was a, a Tumblr, a uh, Bruce Nolan, or I'm sorry, a uh, Christopher Nolan uh, version okay. of the Tumblr was down there. Um, I got this big replica of a penny, and uh, I printed out a piece of artwork for the the giant Joker card. So all that stuff was dropped in later in post. Um, the only thing that was real was the staircase and the actors. That was uh, it. I was just going to say, your attention to detail on the Batcave was just absolutely incredible. I'm sure that some of those some of those comic book people that are really, really deep into details would, would really look at your cave and, and you know, commend you on your authenticity because that looked, that looked incredible. Absolutely. And that was a Jason thing too. Like okay. when I started talking about the Batman, uh, the Batcave, Jason was like, "Oh my God, you gotta, you gotta put in the T Rex, and you gotta put in the card, and you gotta put in the giant penny." And I was like, "Oh my God, you're right. I have to do and, that." And then of course um, you had the Robin, you had the Robin suit in there too, which was right. absolutely necessary. So that Robin was suit was a GI Joe, and I took the GI Joe's head off, and I added the suit. That's because G.I. Joe was giving you attitude. And then uh, I put him in a glass cylinder and, um, yeah, just did a did a shot of the miniature and took photos of the miniature and assembled that all in post. Um, but, yeah, the, the, the Robin suit was, you know, that's one of those things. It's like you've got time to think about it and figure out how to do it. Um, I didn't want to build a full-size suit. How am I going to get a big, huge glass cylinder? It's going to be expensive. And then I started thinking, well, hell, I, I'm only going to see it in, like, two shots. Let's Let's build it in miniature. There's, there's no sense in building that stuff full size. and Well, that's one place that Wyatt's skills in doing miniatures and sculpting just really comes into play. And that he hand-sculpted that whole costume is just amazing to me. I'm in awe of that talent. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, um, all of it looked authentic. So that, so that was, I mean, mission accomplished there. And, I mean, that was very important for that scene. So I sure. So I was I was impressed. I mean, I at some point I was thinking that maybe you were using uh, the graphic novel as like your like you had a black and white copy of the graphic novel and you were just using the panels as your storyboard because that's kind of how no I was idea. almost I was I was almost ready to follow along. I'm like, man, I just pull it out, and look and see, you know, what you're doing because it was very spot on accurate. Was that what you were doing? Pretty much. Okay. I mean, I was doing my own storyboards um, as we went. 
if if I didn't do storyboards, I had a shot list, and we never went into a day of shooting. There was one day of shooting that I didn't use a shot list. Every day of shooting, except for one, I had a shot list or I had storyboards, and we always had the comic book. Or well, I had the I had the graphic novel that was the combination of the four issues together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Graphic novel on set at all times. So if we ever had a question. Or if we ever, you know, wanted to reference something, we had the the graphic novel right there. It's interesting because you imagine you imagine the comic being a storyboard, and it is more or less. But there's very few. Once you start digging around, there's very few actual frames within the comic book that are like widescreen movie style. More of them are kind of square. A lot of them are taller than you think they are. But the basic image is there. So really, you you went to the comic for the basic imagery, and then sometimes you had to recompose it or draw it out a little differently to fill out a widescreen frame. Um, but no, the comic book was my guide, and even the first time I read it, I felt like it was storyboards. I felt it was so visual and it lent itself so well to cinema that that's probably one of the things that helped get me hooked. You know, way back when, all those years ago. Um, but it's also important to note with the Batcave. I I want the fans to know that the only times I varied from stuff like that, like going with a slightly more modern Batcave as opposed to an old stone Gothic Batcave, it it was strictly a matter of budget, availability, available locations. Like with the Wayne Manor, my God, we had a heck of a time trying to get into houses, like wealthy people and their big expensive houses. It's tough to ask someone to let you use their multi-million dollar home, but then you say, I want to use it for free, and I want to use it for a Batman film. Well, we went down that road with a couple of people, and we weren't having any luck, and we were getting a lot of hesitation and a lot of resistance. Um, And then a lot of people, they didn't have the right kind of house. Like I knew it couldn't be modern nice. It had to be old-fashioned nice. It had to be like Gothic architecture. Exactly. It had to be old architecture. And the building that we ended up in, uh, which is called Barnett on Washington, which is this amazing event space, it wasn't exactly what I had in mind, but it was the most epic and the most um, the most ornate thing that we could find. Um, so yeah, so I just, I just want the fans to understand that it's, it's not like I went into it willy nilly, like some other filmmakers do. Um, (laughs) not, uh, not naming any names, Zack Snyder, but, uh, I wasn't going into it willy nilly, just reinventing things for no reason. I only reinvented things because I had to, I didn't have the money to do it differently. Um, I didn't have access to the things I wanted to have access to. So. Okay, well, you know what we're going to do? We're going to take a quick break right now, and then when we come back, I'm going to ask you to delve a little bit into your your feelings about uh, Zack Snyder and the cur- and her, his current iteration of of Batman and the character because because I mean you you just brought it up and that just sprang to mind something that was on my second page. So we're going to go ahead and take a quick break here. Uh, here's a song from Georgina Revel. It's called Dance for Love. Go ahead and listen to this, and we will be right back. Oh, 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 
can you see this? But nothing beats the moment you see that. Cool! That's your child's eyes opening up to a world of possibilities. There are some moments only the forest can inspire. Find yours at discovertheforest.org. Learn about forests near you and discover cool things to do when you go. And you might just see this. Visit discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Oh, Jacqueline. Yes, Mom? I wanted to talk to you about something and... Oh, wait. Hold on. I just got a text. Oh, there's another one. Wow. Busy, busy me. So, anyway... Oh, wait, Mom. I just got a message. My friends keep commenting on my comment. Oh, there's another one. So many comments on my comment. Oh, I can't wait to watch TV tonight. Playoffs! Hey, guys, check out my new video game. Wait, wait, Mom, what? What? What'd you say? Wait a sec, huh? This weekend, unplug. Take your family to the forest. There's nothing in the world like experiencing nature firsthand. Trees, paths, bluebirds, streams. Getting closer to nature can get you closer to your family. To find the forest nearest you, go to discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. The Internet is not a brochure rack. You can't create a website like you'd create a brochure. Print it once, never update it. You've got to treat your website content like a business asset. But face it, you don't have time to focus on your web content. Turn it over to Ion Leap. We're an internet marketing agency who helps companies get found by search engines using robust content. Bring your website content to life. Learn more at ionleap.com. All right, and we are back on tonight's episode of the Zod Rider Show. We have Batman himself, Wyatt Weed, and his wife and producer, Gail Gallagher. And this has been an exciting night so far. I'm so happy that you guys decided to stick around for the whole uh, two hours of the show because I do have a lot more uh, questions and things I want to conversate with you about in regards to your film and other things in general. So, again, I'm very happy you guys are here. We. Uh, no, it's you, awesome. You had made some comments before uh, we went to break about about some directors changing things for the sake of changing them, and you and and you actually did mention uh, the man that directed the most current iteration of Batman. That is, of course, Zack Snyder for Batman v Superman: Dawn of Justice. And I'm sure, sure. you know you've gotten questions about this before, and people want to know what your opinions are in regards to the films and, and things of that nature, but I mean, do you, do you think that, what do you think, just generally speaking now that you've played Batman, what do you think of Ben Affleck's portrayal of the role? You know, I'm, I have to admit, when I first heard that Affleck was going to play the part, my initial reaction was not good, but not because I don't like Ben Affleck. I like Ben Affleck. I just thought, you know, when Henry, when Henry Cavill took on Superman, he had done some movies, but he wasn't a household name, so he became our new Superman. Ben Affleck was such a huge name, I thought, God, how is he ever going to... He's always going to be Ben Affleck. No matter what he does, he's just going to be Ben Affleck pretending to be Bruce Wayne or Batman. Well, I think there's a lot of potential there, and I think given what Batman versus Superman was, I thought he did a good job in it. Um, 
I think now that he's going to direct his own Batman film, I think that's going to be a very different animal. And I'm really interested to see where he's going to take it because I think he has the potential to be a really, really good Batman. Um, is, he, is he a fanboy? Is Affleck. who a fanboy? Affleck. Oh, Affleck's a fanboy, I think. I think yeah, Affleck's he's a huge, huge comic book yes. fan. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, coming from that whole crowd with Kevin Smith and all, I'm sure Affleck knows his, his geekery pretty good. Um, but I think Affleck was a victim of just the tone of Batman versus Superman. It's such a somber, you know, it's just such a somber and largely humorless affair that I think it was, you know, I've gotten some blowback from fans about my portrayal of Bruce Wayne because they've said, oh, you talk too much, you're too emotional, you... You should be more hardcore. You should you should say less. And I thought, you know, that's the comic book, and that's fun and cool to do stuff like that in a comic book. To watch it, though, and to live with it for 45 minutes, I wanted to have a little more range and a little bit more humor and humanity because the problem with a lot of the Batman that we've seen up to now is that Bruce Wayne is tortured and Bruce Wayne is angry and Bruce Wayne is depressed. And then he becomes Batman and he's even more angry and he's even more tortured. <coughs> Excuse me. So it can just be kind of a drag sometimes. Um, and I wanted to avoid that. And as if I'm able to do more films, I want to play with it more. And I want Batman, I want Bruce Wayne to become a little bit more cocky. As he goes along, I want him to become a little bit more sort of darkly humorous. I want Batman to be more confident. Um, so I want this character to evolve over the course of the films if I'm able to do them. Um, Affleck, it remains to be seen. I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that what he can do with his own standalone film is going to be good. Um, I, I, I have hopes for it. I, I haven't given up on it. And honestly, what we've already seen of Justice League, the Justice League teaser that we saw... That already looks more fun. They've injected oh, more yeah, humor. Absolutely. Bruce Wayne's got a little bit more, you know, range to him. He's not just all down and dirty. Um, already, Justice League looks like a more fun film. Um, hopefully, they can pull it out of the fire. Um, but you asked me about Zack Snyder. Um, <laughs> here's here's the weird thing for me. I'm a I'm I'm a Zack Snyder fan. I've loved some of Zack Snyder's films. I loved his Dawn of the Dead. I liked 300 um, and Watchmen. My God, Watchmen, which was the other, you know, critical, hugely successful 1986 comic series. It was yeah, 1986. And it, was was a, and it was also considered the unfilmable graphic novel. Yeah. That was what it was, I, what it was known as for so long. And I loved Watchmen. I thought Zack I, Snyder I did, did it. I did too. I did too. I think, I think he got a lot of flack because he made his, his superheroes in Watchmen a little bit too super because the whole point of Watchmen is a lot of the heroes in Watchmen were just regular people. So a lot of the True. things that were done with the characters in the film, you know, to stylize them and make them masters in martial arts and different things, that right. that was, I think, what really, you know, what kind of did him in, you know, you know, fan-wise because he made a lot of right. little adjustments but you kind of have to do that if you're going to do it and for today's audiences and you're going to up and you're going to make it you know for film i mean it's that's what that's what watchman is that's what watchman is you know you've got to kind of 
you know, make adaptions and go along, you know. So I think I think that's I think that's the whole point. I think his his film yeah. his film hit all the right beats and all the right notes when it came to the graphic novel, but then some of the changes that he made just annoyed, you know, hardcore fans of the of the graphic novel. So Well and I think unfortunately Watchmen was also an example of, you know, and I, I know something about Hollywood financing and I know something about Hollywood releases. I don't know all the inner workings, but all I can say is Watchmen should not have been a one hundred million dollar epic. I mean he probably had he probably had the support of the studio. He'd already come off of 300 and Dawn of the Dead. They probably thought this thing was going to make a billion dollars. So they gave him the money to do it right. And, and he did a great job. But Watchmen, I still don't think, was high enough on the radar for the general public right. that when it got released, and it didn't do badly. It was a $100 million film that did, I don't know, like 180-something theatrically or something. So it was considered not hugely successful. And I thought, you know, Watchmen at $50 million would have been a huge success. And then I look at something like um, Deadpool. And, and Deadpool oh, yeah. was brilliant because they said, look, we can't make this hard R-rated film and spend $200 million on it. Here, here's $50 million. Do whatever you want, but just make it for $50 million. And, and that thing took off. It exploded. So... But, you know, Deadpool at $200 million, not nearly as impressive. They would have had to have rounded the edges off of it. They would have had to have softened it a little bit. So it, it just seems like Hollywood is always so geared up for the home run. So do you think, they never think so, about I mean, in, in that, in that wow. vein, do you think that Watchmen would have been a better movie if it were made for $50 million because it could have played, it could have played up to the comic book a little more and been maybe... Maybe even more faithful. Maybe they could. Maybe they would have went ahead and you did the squid if it was a fifty million dollar film. You know, it would have been interesting because there would have been things. You know, I think a few less effects, a few less um, slow mo shots, a few less CGI elements, um, right. a few less things in that film, and it still would have been a great film. And I think if they'd spent less on it, you know, it might have forced him to you know, be a little bit more real on something. I mean, look at what we did with, you know, the budget that we had and, you know, we were forced to be real and we were forced to really take this thing down to the bare bones and it played to our advantage. I mean, honestly, if somebody said to me tomorrow, Wyatt, make, make the dark Knight returns as a feature film. That's three hours long. I would be daunted by a two or $300 million budget because I know what that would entail, and I know that it would entail appealing to an American audience, a European audience, a worldwide audience. It would change the nature of the movie, and there are certain things that they would want in that movie. Um, but if I said, look, give me $50 million, leave me alone, then I wouldn't have all the interference. I could do whatever the hell I want. From what I understand, Logan, the, the movie that Hugh Jackman is doing, the the supposed final Wolverine film. Yeah. Apparently they really wanted to make it R rated. They really wanted to get hardcore with the action and the Logan character. And apparently even um, Hugh Jackman took a pay cut so that they could get that film down in budget. Because as soon as they said R rating, the studio got cold feet. The studio was like, Oh my God, we can't make a big budget R rated film. It, we just won't make any money on it. So everybody worked really hard to make the film cheaper. Yeah, it would have been really interesting to see what a $50 million uh, Watchmen 
would have looked like. Um, so, so then you get you get Zack Snyder moving on to, you know, Man of Steel, and there's a lot to love about Man of Steel, and there's a lot that you know. I, you got to give him points for trying new things. You got to give him points for trying new designs. I've never seen anything quite like their version of Krypton. I've never seen anything quite like some of the things they were doing in that film. And, of course, I was with them on Man of Steel. And Superman is dreamy. And Superman is dreamy. Right up until the point where um, they decided to destroy Metropolis, which I think was just one of the biggest miscalculations in a film ever. So then you get Man of Steel. Or, I'm sorry, then you get uh, Batman versus Superman. We're up to Batman versus Superman now. And they try and sort of backpedal the whole destruction of metropolis they try to turn it into a motivation for uh bruce wayne which i thought was just kind of ridiculous and they were trying to fix something after the fact but the biggest problem i had with batman versus superman was you know throughout the dc comics batman versus batman and superman have fought i don't know a dozen times throughout the comics uh Batman falls under the control of somebody. He's forced to fight Superman. Something happens to Superman. He gets a dose of red kryptonite. Next thing you know, Batman and Superman are fighting. It's happened before. But probably the most iconic Batman-Superman fight has been the one in The Dark Knight Returns. Yes. And mm-hmm. I almost... Here's, here's my final theory. I kind of almost feel like Zack Snyder didn't know how many chances he was going to get to do this. And I think that he wanted to do his Dark Knight Returns, his Batman versus Superman, before he couldn't do it again or before they pulled the plug. Or if it had flopped, I think he just decided, you know, here's my chance. I've I've done this. I've got the studio behind me. I've got all this money. I want to do my version of Batman versus Superman. So rather than risk the time to set it up, do a half a dozen or a dozen films, let Affleck get older, and then do the Dark Knight Returns proper and do it in sequence and do it sort of at the tail end of the series, I think he just jumped the gun. I think he jumped the gun and he went in and he did his own variation of it. And my feeling is, if you're not improving it, don't mess with it. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you another you know example. I th- you know what? I have to say, I you know, I actually did like that movie a lot and i get a lot of flack because i liked you know batman v superman i preferred the extended edition over the one that yeah, was released in the theater. extended edition is marge it is marginally better it right. fleshes out some characters yeah, yeah. But, it, i don't think it's night and day but the extended version is better it really is but my but my my thought is my thought i agree with you 100 percent on your theory i think that's what it is he, he wanted to do it and he had to do it when he knew he had the chance and I think it's, yeah. I think it's, I think that's like the be- that's like the best theory ever anybody could have for it. As to why it's, <laughs> as to why it's so bloated and why they threw in so many different storylines, that's something. Oh my god, that's something. That's yeah. a completely different argument. But as far as you know, being able to do that Batman versus Superman fight kind of a thing in that manner yeah. and using those elements from Dark Knight Returns. You know, I have snapped at some fan. Oh, not snapped at, but I've I've given some fans some trouble. Um, some fans have commented about, oh, your movie is so long. Your movie is so- why'd you make it so long? I'm like, dude, my movie is 45 minutes long. If you can sit through the director's version of Batman versus Superman, 
You can sit down and shut up and watch my 45-minute well, Batman. Here's the thing about your 45-minute yeah. film. Your 45-minute film covers the first issue of the comic. It's the most first, of it. It's the it, first it, it at least well, covers much. I, I'm, I'm yeah, saying, I'm saying, as as much as you you know you did in live action, that's kind of how it felt to me. It felt like it covered the majority of the first issue. Um, you're, yes. You're, yeah. If you want to sit down and watch a three-hour version or close to three-hour version of Batman. Uh, the Dark Knight Returns. Just watch the animated version. There's a complete, yes, there's a complete yes. animated <laughs> version that ha- that does the whole story. And I mean, you could sit there yeah. and watch. I mean, and it and it's and a, a lot longer than your film. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's interesting. Um, I liked the animated film. I was disappointed when I heard that Peter Weller was going to play Batman, Bruce Wayne. I was excited. But I just wasn't thrilled with the voice performance. It just, it very much to me sounded like, you know, just a guy sitting in a room somewhere reading lines. And just for, you know, the, the, the weight that Peter Weller has behind him in the fan community and him being Robocop and all, I just thought, oh my God, this is going to be the best thing ever. And then after I heard it, I thought, well, why didn't they go back to Kevin Conroy? Why didn't, why didn't they get Kevin Conroy to do that? I had heard the, I had heard the rumor, and this was a rumor when they were doing it, that they were going to try and get Michael Keaton. I don't know why they didn't. Oh, wow, really? That would have been that was what that yeah. was the big rumor. That was the big rumor that was going around at the time when they that it was that it was between it was between Michael Keaton, Clint Eastwood, and a couple other people. And I and, huh. and I was excited when when Peter Weller got it too because I, th- I thought just like you he's an '80s icon and but you're right yeah. you know it kind of came off more like when he was delivering his lines and some elements came off more like an audio book than yes it's a good like a, like a like a film you know yeah he was kind of maybe he was a little bit tired when he was in the booth most of the time. Who knows? But. If they had him just in an audio studio, and if they didn't have other actors there that they were reacting to, you know, maybe he was literally just reading the well, lines. Uh, well, that, see, that's the thing. In a lot, mm-hmm. a lot of those animated movies, they don't have the entire cast together while they're doing those. Yes. Doing those yeah. Right, exactly. like, like we had interviewed on our show a, a couple of, I, I think it is it was it one is it was it last year or the year before Victoria? I'm trying to remember. Uh, we had uh, Jan Rapson. Who who did the voice of uh, Tetsuo in the uh, in Akira? Yes, uh, and he, that's right. He Two years about, ago, I he think he talked about he talked about that how he was in a booth by himself. There was nobody else in there, and he just delivered his lines, and they mixed it all now, together. Which version? And... Which version of Akira was that? Was that like the streamlined that, that, version that or the, the that was the streamlined dub? Okay, that was, all right, he, um, yeah. Going way, way back, and this is a whole nother show. I actually worked at Streamline for many years. Oh my god! That's uh, great. New, oh, new wow. Basic really well. Um, that was that was an interesting time. That was a really interesting time in my life. Like I, I said, we'll talk about that some other time. But oh, uh, well, you can yeah. talk about it. That would be cool. I, you know what? I, <laughs> let me tell you. Let me tell you something. I always. I always wanted to, one of my dream interviews, and unfortunately he passed away, was to talk to Carl Masick. That, that has always you know, been one of my dream yeah. interviews because I've always been a big fan of stream, of what Streamline Pictures put out. That version of Akira with Jan Rapson is absolutely one of my top five, if not number one favorite animated film of all time. So I, the interesting thing about Carl, Carl took a lot of flack. Yeah. 
for a lot of people say, oh, he butchered, he butchered Macross and he turned it into Robotech and he just, he ruined it. And oh, the original is so much better and blah, 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 blah. Carl was working for Harmony Gold. Harmony Gold purchased the rights to that stuff. And Harmony Gold basically gave him orders to revamp that series in a certain way and package it a certain way and change elements a certain way. And a lot of people don't realize it wasn't like Carl went in there and said, I'm going to rewrite this to my own satisfaction. Carl was basically a guy for hire. And I think, yes, some of the, the Robotech stuff varied from the original Macross, but he did a great job. And it, it, it got anime in front of so many people in the United States for the first time. So you can, com- you can complain about he's Carl. And what- I, he's a hero as yeah. far as I'm concerned. Yeah. He, I mean, it's, it's crazy because... The fact that they licensed Akira and got it into theaters in the United States, um, yeah, that was just absolutely huge. They brought Akira to the United States. I think they brought... Uh, some of the first Wicked, um, Wicked Studio Ghibli films, Vamp- Vampire yeah. Hunter D, yeah, yeah my neighbor, my neighbor Totoro, yeah. all that great stuff. I mean, it it's incredible, you know, his contributions to bringing anime to the United States. I mean, I'll tell you one more thing about Streamline, um, and then we can go back to Batman. Um, what I did a lot of at Streamline was I, I worked and associated with Streamline off and on over maybe like a five or six year period. And a lot of what I was involved in, believe it or not, was a lot of the model kits and the toys and stuff. So they put out a line of Speed Racer model kits. And I was involved in production of a lot of those Speed Racer model kits. Um, So I worked on Speed Racer figures. I worked on car acrobatic team cars and, you know, um, Racer X's uh, shooting star. And so I worked on a lot of those model kits and then they started getting into model kits based on other films. Like we did a, a, a robot carnival line of toys and model kits. And I was involved in, you know, producing all of that stuff. Um, we did a, a brief run of ElfQuest stuff where we, we did a cutter uh, model kit from ElfQuest, and so I did a lot of actual physical production. But the idea Carl had was always to make movies. He wanted to get into live action films too, and he had me and a couple other people there, and and he put us to work doing whatever he could. But ultimately, he wanted us all there because he wanted to move into films. And the only thing we ever did was we ended up doing a couple of like video game live action segments and we did some special effects for movies but unfortunately it just never gelled and turned into feature film work that's where that's where he wanted to go um and that's why i was involved because that's where i wanted to go too but yeah ultimately it all broke up and he sold he sold streamline to metropolis and then that all just oh my god it just it all became such a big huge you know legal mess yeah. And it was really sad. It was really sad that it didn't end any better than it did, honestly. So, so, but. so like, so like in your in your time at at uh, at Streamline, do you have any? Have, do you remember? Do you have your fondest? Still have your fondest memory of Streamline Pictures? The, the thing you the thing you liked most about being about being there. You know. Um, we had a couple of good memories. Um, he had 
he had all all the films that he got the rights for. He got all the animation cells, and then he was licensed to sell off those animation cells. So if you can imagine, like we'd work hard all week, and then Friday night somebody would get some beer, and we'd order out for some pizza, and we'd sit out in the warehouse in Santa Monica. And we'd go through boxes of animation cells. So if you can imagine picking up a box and reading the label on top and it said, you know, Akira. And you'd sit down and you'd start looking through a box of Akira cells and you'd start pulling out cells of like um, the motorcycle. Were these actual hand-drawn? These were the actual original painted animation cells. So just sitting there and going through these boxes of cells and pulling out cells and sitting them aside like, Oh, this is a good one. You got to sell this one or, Oh, this is a good one. I want to buy this one from you. Um, those kinds of times I think were really a lot of fun. Um, he brought in a lot of crazy people from around the world who would come there and work briefly for him and they would do design work. Um, and they'd help with packaging or he'd have a project in development or he was trying to get animation off the ground. I remember he brought in this animator from England named Edwin and Edwin at the time he'd come to the United States to work on Space Jam. So he's over animating on Space Jam part of the time. And then he's over at Streamline helping design some animation stuff that Carl wanted to do. And just that kind of creative energy where you've got Carl spewing out ideas. You've got Edwin, this animator drawing stuff. And then you've got me and Rob Martin and Al Zakeda and Alex Rivera and these other guys out on, out on the floor doing the fabrication and we were producing toys and miniatures and prototypes for stuff that the world will never see. Um, you know, we, we developed a whole television series called rail runners and rail runners was the, the idea was make it as an animated series, sell all the toys and then go into live action. Rail runners never got past the development stage, but you know, there were all these toys made and all these prototype things built and photographed and, you know, people would be shocked at the amount of stuff that gets developed that almost becomes a reality and then doesn't. Um, I was watching, just before we, we started this broadcast tonight, I was watching a, a fan film online. Um, it's a Han Solo fan film. Yeah, I just, I, I, I just watched it. I just watched that myself the other day. I was it like a Han Solo, about. a smuggler story yeah, or something like story, that? smuggler story, yeah. Okay. He, in the beginning, he's in like a bar and they get in a fight and they kick him out of the bar. The bar he's in, it's actually part of a set that I was responsible for back in the 90s. And by that, you mean you build. Well, I mean, I supervised the building of it. Back in the 90s, we were working on this pilot for television called Star Runners. And we built these amazing Starship sets. And we shot this pilot for television that Universal Studios bought... And then they started developing toys, and then they shelved the whole thing. You, you will never see it. We, we put together scripts. We put together a series treatment. We shot the pilot episode. We built the sets. We got the costumes. We got everything. We, sh we built miniatures. We shot effect sequences. It's, it's under lock and key at Universal. You will never see it. The irony is that the sets are still standing on a soundstage in North Hollywood, the Laurel Canyon stages, and people keep shooting movies and shows on these sets. This this Han Solo thing was shot on those sets. Darth Vader versus Batman was shot on these sets. Um, an episode of Firefly 
was shot on these sets. These are like the most used sets since, you know, the Roger Corman era. These sets okay. have been around forever. Wow. And yeah, you'll wow. the, the regular audience will never the regular audience will never see this pilot for television that I directed. It it, it will never be seen publicly. How, how um, hard is that to deal with when it something like that is shelved like that? Does it happen very often? Or, you know, like, how do you get over that? You know, you, you tell yourself initially that if the check clears and if you get paid, it's good. And when you're a 20-something-year-old kid and you're trying to survive in Los Angeles, the paycheck clears, you can live another month, you're happy um, and you put the work in your portfolio and you go to the next shop or you go to the next job interview and you get the next job and you move on. After a while, what you realize is, well, wait a minute. I want my work to affect people. I want my work to add up to something. I want it to amount to something. I'm sick of busting my butt for stuff and not having the public see it because even if I'm doing great work, if the public's not seeing and reacting to it and they're not buying the DVDs or they're not, you know, tuning in to watch it on television, then it really doesn't come back around to me. So after a while, I just started getting much more critical of who I would work with. You, you learn very quickly that you, you, you start to assess people. You start to go into a production company and you interview with them. And you can see whether or not they have a track record or you can see whether or not they know what they're doing. Um, and you very quickly figure out whether or not it's a reality, whether or not it's going to happen, or if it does happen, is it going to get seen? Um, a lot of the films I've worked on that I'm really happy with, they never really got solid distribution and they were never seen by a wide audience. So, you know, it gives you a good warm feeling, but if nobody notices, it's, it's kind of a bummer. So you just... Cynical is the wrong word, but you start becoming much more wary and much more judgmental of the projects that you're going to get involved in. And one of the things about this Batman film that I did was, you know, I, it, it had to get done and it had to be good and it had to represent because I didn't want to go to all that trouble and have it amount to nothing or have it amount to something bad it, it had to be something good. So all the all the failures and all the projects that you'll never see or all the wasted effort, it's just really made me that much more determined and that much more focused. Like if I'm going to, if I'm going to put my foot forward, I want the results to be seen. Um, Jason's Western next year. If we're going to start this Western, we're going to finish this Western and it's going to be good and damn it, it's going to get out there and it's going to get seen if we have to do it ourselves so four color eulogy you will see it in dvd stores do or die sooner or later because it has to because we put too much work into it and it's an, so and that, it's an original film so you guys yeah. you guys yeah. are, are totally totally yeah. there yeah I, I, so i don't want to go into like three more batman films <laughs> if i if i can't do them can't do them right and can't get them out there in front of the audience i don't i don't want to half-ass it it's like I know once I go down that road, I am stuck because I am not gonna get. I'm not gonna be done until Batman fights Superman, and it's amazing and it's cool and it's the Batman versus Superman scene. You know, going back to Batman versus Superman, despite the fact that he sort of cribbed all the best parts from The Dark Knight Returns and gutted it, 
I will say that the, the aspects of the fight that he drew directly from the comic were cool. It was really cool. He did a good job. I liked the exchanges. Um, you know, it might be nice to just see a guy in a suit and a guy in a costume just actually physically duking it out on a set without all the CGI. But I will say that the stuff that Zack Snyder did with the actual fight, I, I thought he did really, really well. I think it would have had more emotional weight in a better film. Um, if I do Batman versus Superman, you're going to understand why they're fighting. You're going to believe that they would fight. You're going to believe that they would have motivation to fight. When it happens, you will absolutely believe it and you will absolutely understand why they're fighting when it actually comes around and, and when it actually happens. So, here, so, so here's the question about that. Mm. Have you given have you given any thought to who your Superman is going to be? Yes, because I know I you're planning I know you're planning that on the line, so I mean is that You know uh, here's because I'm still just thinking about this and because I still haven't um because I still haven't really committed openly to doing it. Let me just say that I've looked at other fan projects that have amazing Superman actors in them. And I think the first thing I'd like to do is maybe talk to some of those actors and see if they'd be interested in reprising Superman since they're already known. Like the guy, I think his name was Michael O'Hearn. And he played Superman in Sandy Calora's trailer, uh, World's Finest. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. and, and I liked Michael, Michael O'Hearn's look. I, I don't know Michael O'Hearn. I've never met him. Um, I don't know what kind of an actor he is beyond the trailer that he did with Sandy. But he certainly looks the part. And there are some people more Midwestern who are known for their cosplay. They're known for going to conventions and being Superman at these conventions. And I don't want to name any names because all I've really done is kind of looked around Stalk online. Them. I've stalked them online. <laughs> so I have people in mind. And I think if I was going to do anything financially on these next couple of films, I'm really fanatic about keeping it a fan film, not, not spending too much money, and not taking money really from people because I don't want to cross that line that the studios don't like, but I think I would be willing to take donations from fans if it involved flying in an actor. Um, you know, if I needed to fly in an actor who was Superman and cover his expenses for two weeks so I could get all of his scenes done, I would be willing to do that. Um, so, so I've put some thought into it, but at this point I'm not really ready to, commit to saying exactly what the plan is. The only thing I've done concrete that I can tell you about is I've spent more time than I should in the last two weeks looking at large scale remote controlled tanks because I've been thinking about how to build the Batmobile as a miniature and it really needs to be like a remote controlled tank chassis and you strip off the upper part of the tank and then you build the Batmobile onto that remote control tank chassis and then you shoot it as a miniature. So that's one of the things I've, I've put some thought into. Um, and there's some actors in The Dark Knight Returns. Obviously, I want the actors to come back and continue their roles. I, I'd want Ava Otis to come back and play Carrie Kelly. And, I'd and, want, wait, wait, uh, and, I, and I have to stop you there because you just, you just mentioned Carrie Kelly. I was going to... I was just going to compliment you on 
Carrie Kelly, I thought that that was perfect casting. That was unbelievable. She's, she reminded yeah. me so much of the character. I, I couldn't believe it. I was like, wow, this is this is incredible. This is who I would want to see as Carrie Kelly in an official film. So that was that was brilliant. It was a good job right there. I, I can you? Can she you was a young a actress. Um, she's um. There's a an actress I know named Taylor Peets, and Taylor had a small part in Four Color. She's a singer songwriter as well. She wrote the main theme song to Four Color, Batman. and she's in Batman as Carol Ferris in the opening racetrack sequence. Taylor is Carol Ferris. Well, we were hunting around for Carrie Kelly, and frankly, I know actors who are my age, and I I know actors who are in their thirties, forties, fifties. I don't know young actors. Um, and I started asking around, and Taylor said, you know, I give piano and voice lessons to this young girl who's an actress and who's done some work at her high school in theater, and I think she'd be right. And she showed me a photo of her, and I just died. I thought, oh, my God, that's that's her. Yeah, That's got <laughs> to be her. Wow. So I met her, and I sat down at a coffee shop with her, and we chatted, and I knew she could do it. Um and then she showed up on set that day with the haircut and we had the glasses made for her. Um, the one funny thing that happened is we shot the first scene where she comes up the steps and we see her for the first time and she's telling her friend to hurry up. And then they, they hike the rest of the way up the steps into the arcade. Um, she had her hair trimmed on both sides of her head and her hair on top was grown out really long and she'd flip it to the side. Well, we start to shoot the next scene upstairs and I look at her and something's wrong. And I'm like, "What? why do you look different all of a sudden? Is, is your hair on the other side now? And she goes, oh, yeah, it's kind of a nervous habit. I flip my hair back and forth. And I'm like, um, you can't do that for the rest of the day. <laughs> you, we started with your hair on the other side. You have to leave your hair on that side for the rest of the day. You cannot flip your hair in between shots. And she's like, oh, okay, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And it just, you know, young young girl, hadn't done a lot of film work, so she really didn't know. Here's one of the risks I took with Dark Knight Returns, and now we're going to see how it comes around if I do more films. Um, I cast for the short term. Um, I cast Ava to do the one scene as Carrie Kelly, and she did a great job. She's going to grow up. Yeah, she's she's already by the she came to the screening, the public screening last month at a at a theater here in St. Louis, and she had already you know grown up a little bit more, and her hair had changed, and you know she's still Ava, but I'm gonna have to keep an eye on her and see you know how she changes over the next year or two before she comes back, and then uh, like the actor who played the Joker, um, yeah, Carlos Leon. Carlos Leon is a, a friend of mine, and he's an actor, but he's based out of Miami, and he travels back and forth between Miami and Los Angeles. He was going to be in St. Louis, so I talked to him in advance and said, would you be interested in playing the Joker for a day? I really didn't think about bringing him back to do a whole film with him as the Joker. I think he'd do it. It's just there's going to be a lot of complexity in bringing these people back for extended roles in the film. Um, so that, that is one of the drawbacks is I was not planning long-term. I just, I wanted to get the dark Knight returns done and I wasn't thinking beyond that. I think these people will all come back. I think we'll be able to make it work, but there's going to be some interesting, uh, hoops to jump through if we're going to be able to bring these people back and do this. So, 
Um, but no, I, I agree with you. I thought Ava was great as Carrie. I'd love to put her in a Robin costume and get her doing some gymnastics and some fighting. I, I love, I would, I can't wait to do the scene where mutant leader has beaten Batman to a pulp. And she basically helps scoop him up off the ground and help him climb back onto the Batmobile. And then she's standing with him as he's, you know, bleeding to death on the, the gyroscopically stabilized table as the Batmobile is going back to Wayne Manor and he's talking to her and yeah, I just, I can't wait to do all that stuff if, if we actually get to do the second film. So another thing I, I have to commend you on uh, for the film as a whole is finally giving Batman white eyes. For real. And you know, you know what's amazing? I realized Sandy Calora, uh, his Batman in um, in Dead End, he gave that actor white contact lenses, I believe. So Sandy kind of did a version of white eyes. But here's what I don't get: I I absolutely had to have white eyes on my Batman, and years ago like 20 years ago in los angeles i'd actually sculpted a dark knight bat cowl and i had found a white mesh material that i knew would work as eye material so that from the outside it would look white but that you could look out Mm -hmm. well i only ever made one of these cowls it was a long time ago the cowl went by the wayside i became a better sculptor i knew i could do a better job so i didn't worry about that anymore um then it was just a matter of going and looking for material, mesh material that looked white enough from the outside, but that I could still see through clearly enough to, to actually be able to perform. And that's as simple as it is. And I do not know why we haven't seen it in a film prior to now, because you get those scenes in the films with the black around the eyes. When the hell does he have time to put the black around his <laughs> eyes? Um, there's that ridiculous scene. I loved Batman returns, but there's that ridiculous scene at the end where Michael Keaton tears the cowl off of his head. And in the shot before his eyes are black, he's got the black makeup around his eyes and then he tears the cowl off his head and there's no makeup around his eyes anymore. And you know, I, it's a mystery to me why no filmmaker has done white eyes. The closest, the closest they came to it in live action was actually in Batman V Superman during the scene where you see Batman yes. being hurt and then his eyes are like flashlight eyes. That was right out mm-hmm. of the Dark Knight Returns and that was the one yes. time that we actually got that in live action. So I give Zack Snyder credit for that too because it's like nobody nobody's done that and I agree with you. I don't understand why it would be so difficult to do that. It's weird now, to me. There were times there were times where it was difficult, like anything. Um white mesh if light hits it it gets harder to see through. If bright light hits it, it's almost impossible to see. So there were times when I was performing to camera and I kind of had to know where everything was beforehand because I wasn't going to be able to see well. Um, There were other times where because it was a fight scene or because of a danger, we had to take the mesh out so that I could see. Like when I was running along the edge of the warehouse, like when the, the cop in the car looks up and sees me running along the edge of the warehouse... That's actually me 25 feet up off the ground on the edge of a building running along the edge of the building with the mesh in and the light shining on me from the street. I could not see. So in order to not, you know, plunge to my death, I had to take the mesh out of the mask for that night. And there was some fight scenes where 
because of the lighting, I couldn't see where I was hitting. So we had to pull the mesh out. But in those shots, I was seen from the back anyway. So it didn't matter whether or not the mesh was in. But no, I, I love doing the mesh. It just meant that there had to be that much more expression in the face. You know, in a big budget film, like in a $50 million version, I probably would have done a foam latex cowl because a foam latex cowl would have been softer and you would have seen my expressions come through the foam rubber easier. Um, we did a, a cast of a slush latex cowl. So the slush latex cowl pretty much had a permanent expression and it didn't really flex much. So it all had to be in my face or in my jaw. It all had to be in my mouth and in my jaw. You really couldn't see the expression in my eyes. Um, I'm making all kinds of faces under that mask. <laughs> You're just not seeing it all. You know, to, to see anger in Batman's face, I have to be really mad because you're only seeing half of the expression. So, but, you know, I got used to that. I got used to, like, jaw acting, you know. <laughs> How do I have to set my jaw in this scene to get across what I want? So, yeah. So, and you sculpted oh, wow. I sculpted the cowl. J Gail did my head cast. I, I showed Gail how to do a head cast. So she learned how to do a head cast. She then did my head cast. And then I sculpted the cowl and did the mold and did the casting and did the painting of the, the, the cowl. Um, Cause that's all stuff I learned how to do in Hollywood. That's over the years in Hollywood. That's all training that I had, but that's also one of the reasons why the film was so cheap because we did all this stuff ourselves and we could pay to do it ourselves. And we didn't have to hire out a lot of people to do these kinds of things. You know, if you want to make a Batman film, but you don't know the first thing about costume making, Step number one is you got to pay someone else to make your costume or buy one, and that gets expensive real fast. Exactly. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, and your so. costume, your costume looked decent too. I mean, you had a good, you had a, had the had the whole Dark Knight Returns blue going on. So I'm I'm imagining that in future films you will switch to a black costume as the story goes on. Yes, and I think there's some fans who either. Either they're not paying attention to the comic or they don't know the comic. There's a lot of fans who said, you've gone to Adam West with this. And my reaction, what the hell are you talking about? I've gone to Adam West. And I think what it is, is when you put a human, if you, when you put a real person into the classic blue, yellow, and gray costume, almost anybody tends to somewhat resemble Adam West. I mean, if you look at a lot of like because even from Michael Keaton on, they were all in black, right? Well, and they were all armored. They were yeah. all in armor plating. Um, but a lot of fans forget that in that first issue of the Dark Knight Returns, he starts out in the classic blue, yellow, and gray. And I think that's a tribute. I think that's a tribute to like the Neil Adams era. I think that's a tribute to like seventies era Batman Absolute, part. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I would keep I would keep that costume up through the first mutant fight, and basically mutant leader trashes his costume during that first fight, and then when he goes back out to take on mutant leader the second time, that's when he's in the black and gray version. Which a fan online pointed out something really interesting, which I think is a great theory. A fan online said he thinks that the switch to the black and gray is that once the one costume got destroyed, they kind of dug into the vaults or the closet and pulled out an older suit for him. So I don't think it's that 
you know, he went back into production on bat suits and started making new bat suits. I think Alfred pulled out the older bat suit for him and said, here, wear this one. And, you know, cause the, the gray and black was kind of a simpler kind of a more old fashioned design. So, but yes, I will absolutely move over to the black and gray suit. I, I, after the first I, I think, I think getting criticism because you used the blue suit in the beginning, like you were supposed to, I, I, I think I hearken that as people that actually don't read comics and they just kind of yeah. thumb through them or they might look at the pictures, but don't look at it clearly. And, and, you know, like Gail pointed out about everything, you know, them being black and all, uh, armored throughout all the you know feature yeah. films that we've had you know the film mm-hmm. version has kind of resonated more with people so yeah definitely exactly. sho- definitely shove off that criticism because that was one thing that <laughs> that was definitely one thing that stood out to me that you were going for authenticity and that that i was it was at that point when i seen you that i wanted to take out the book and start making comparisons because i knew where you were going because of the way you started cool. out with the correct costume and that's yeah that's and- makes sense and i appreciate that i mean in a bigger budget version honestly i think you know if we'd had more time to experiment if we'd had more time to camera test the costume honestly the first time i appeared on camera as batman we had really just finished the costume and pulled it together like literally the night before so the first time it was on camera we were still tweaking and messing with it and adjusting it and frankly if i'd had it to do over again i probably would have toned down the blue but, you know, we were lucky to have the damn thing together and in one piece and on set when it needed to be on set. So I may have taken down the intensity of the blue a little bit. But beyond that, I was happy with it. Um, and, you know, where the hell fans are getting this whole Adam West thing from? Because I do show the 66 Batman, but it's a tribute. You know, but I also show the Tumblr. And I also show things from other eras and show other things from other films. It's, and it's, it's authenticity. It's what you were going. Yeah. It's it's what a, it's what a true fan of that material is going to notice. And and that's who you're that's who you're doing these this film for, uh, as well as yourself and the people that are not, that are are trolling you because of of that. I mean, they're they're just wrong. So you can always you can always, you can always just you can always just look at it like that. They're they're wrong, and they don't know what they're talking about, and they don't know they're Batman. Okay, whatever. It's Batman is he's gone through many different looks over many different eras, and your film yeah. tries to, to tries to tribute that and does so perfectly. Like you said, you yeah. you even you had the 1966 Batmobile there. So you you know yeah. you had all those nods to all those eras, even the Nolan era with the tumbler, and I mean it yep. just it just would it's just amazing. I since you since you you know you talked a little bit about your what you were thinking about for your Superman, you know, and that that was fascinating. But you also but I also have to ask now your the big the big suit that that Batman wears in the final fight with Superman. Yep. Do you, have you given thoughts to how you're going to construct that as well? Um, yes. Um, <laughs> yes, I have. He's um, gone from only doing the one movie to having already planned how to do this suit. Well, and I have to admit, <laughs> I my I kind of things fall into place in my head very very quickly. Like when the once the idea, like I can struggle with an idea for months. Once the idea locks into place. The rest of it just falls into place very quickly, like dominoes. So as soon as I started even considering the concept of doing more films, 
things started to fall into place very, very quickly in my head. I, like I said, I've done nothing about it really other than some <laughs> research, but um, there's a technique, a costuming technique, and it's, it's foam construction or foam fabrication. And there's a, a good friend of mine, Ted Smith, um, and he's on YouTube as evil Ted Smith. And Ted Smith is like this master foam fabricator. And Ted Smith, I mean, he, he was a prop man for years. And like, if you needed a prop, um, like manhole cover, like a superhero was going to pick up a manhole cover and clobber another superhero with it. Ted was the guy who would like build a soft foam rubber manhole cover that could be used by stuntmen so people could clock each other over the head with it and it would it would be lightweight and be made out of foam and wouldn't hurt you and would absolutely look like the real McCoy and now Ted is doing this YouTube channel and he's doing live streaming and he's teaching people all over the world how to do foam construction and the guy builds armor and medieval style armor and he builds you know, space suits. And I mean, he could, he could teach you how to make an Iron Man suit out of foam that would be soft and flexible, but look like hard metal. So my idea for the, the armored suit at the end is to do it in a foam construction style. And don't get me wrong. Parts of it would be rigid. And when I turn my head and I move my arms and legs, it would look hard and it would be jointed and it would move like a suit of armor. The difference would be if, Superman punches me and I fall down, I'm not going to get hurt. Like if I was in an actual... And it's not going to weigh 300 pounds. And it's not going to weigh 300 pounds. If I was in like an actual metal suit or if I was in like a fiberglass shell, there'd have to be a lot of padding and we'd crack the fiberglass. The beauty about foam construction with it given like a rubber skin coating and then scenic to look like metal, it doesn't break when you slam it around. You know, Batman could punch me time and again and we wouldn't break the suit. Um, I'm not going to get hurt falling down in it. And it's going to be more like wearing, you know, it's going to be more like wearing a Halloween costume as opposed to, you know, some horribly heavy prop suit. So basically foam construction is what I'm thinking of. And um, those things can be done incredibly realistically. And I'd probably need multiple parts. Like if we do more films, I'm going to need multiple cowls. I'm going to need multiple bat suits. I'd probably need at least a couple of suits or at least replacement parts for the armor suit for that end fight sequence. But also I've thought about, I'd, I want to do much more with miniatures as the film series goes on. Um, like at one point in time, Superman picks up the bat tank and sort of flips it over his head and slams it down. I'd like to do a shot of an actor grabbing a prop piece then switch to a miniature of a, of a puppet Superman moving the tank over his head and then seeing the miniature tank slam down and then cut to a close-up of the Superman actor ripping open the side of the tank and seeing Carrie Kelly inside. Um, and I could see scenes where like Superman punches Batman in the armor and then we cut to like a quarter-sized puppet of him in the armored suit and we throw the puppet across a miniature set and let it crash through a light pole or crash into a miniature brick wall. And then boom, we cut to the close up of me in the brick wall, you know, recovering and standing up. So I think we could do some very dynamic and very realistic stuff 
with puppets and miniatures. And this is stuff that you've got experience with. Yeah. You used to do that in LA, right? Yeah. There's, there's a couple of films I've worked on where we substituted in puppets for stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, I just, I cannot see a lot of pure CGI in the future of this thing. I really just mm. don't, I see a lot of digital things that could be done and I, and digital compositing well, is did, a god. You did a lot of, but... di- you did quite a few digital shots in the opening race, didn't you? Weren't there some digital uh, shots in that? Um, depends on what you mean by digital. Um, we do a lot of digital compositing, but the entire opening sequence, um, we did a lot of what I like to call digital matte painting. Like okay. there's a scene where you, you tilt up and you see the Gotham Motorsports Park um, building, and that's the tower that Carol Ferris is in, and she's watching the whole thing from her binoculars. Well, it originally said Gateway Motorsports Park, and we changed it to Gotham Motorsports Park, and then we put in a couple of race cars driving by on the track. Well, the race cars were like, you know, Hot Wheels size race cars that we slid across a green screen backdrop and then composited those into the shots, and then there was a lot of green screen work of me sitting in the actual vehicle. We, we went to the, the, the driver, Steve Hamilton, we went to his garage and set up a green screen behind his race car. And then I shot shots against green screen, but then the backgrounds behind the car were actual shots done from the car as it was going around the track. Those were all background plates. Um, the car actually crashing was actually a miniature. So that was like a 30-inch long miniature of the race car that we actually crashed. So um, there was very – I mean, so there's a lot of digital assembly. There's a lot of digital enhancement. But as as far as like pure CGI, there was really no pure CGI. Even in the Batcave, it was all photographic elements assembled in Photoshop. You know, and occasionally you'd put in a digital flare or a digital haze or something – but there was not really any pure CGI in the whole film. So oh. and my tendency is to steer clear of CGI. Yeah, that's um, that's it's, good. I, I, you know, I like, I like that. I like the miniatures and, mm-hmm. you know, the practicality of it all. And I mean, that, I mean, and that to me, you know, gave it, gave it an authenticity too. You know, it just looked, it just looked sure. more realistic. I mean, a lot of people, mm-hmm. you know, people, when they give you flack on, on that level, I, I kind of have to ask the question, well, how would how do you think it would look in real life if Batman was walking around doing what he's doing? I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, are you going to expect all these special effects? No. Yeah. So it would actually be a whole lot less interesting if he was doing it in real life. Doing it in um, real life, exactly. And, yeah. and it would be over very quickly. Batman in real life would probably drop in for a few seconds, knock everybody out, and then zip off and. It'll all be over in like. Well, that would be like, the only way he could he could do yeah. it. He could get out alive because if he kept doing yeah. it, eventually he'd get he'd get caught and killed. So yes, it's it's like the film Top Gun. Supersonic, supersonic um, dogfights happen very very quickly, and they're not very interesting because when jets fly at seven or eight hundred miles an hour and they're shooting missiles at each other from several miles away, it's a whole lot less exciting than it was in Top Gun. So in Top Gun, they slow the jets all down and they're shooting missiles at each other at point blank range and they're firing machine guns at each other. And it's very, very exciting. Super, uh, supersonic jet fights don't look like that. And they're over in like a minute and a half. Like the, the, the fights are decided and they're over and said and done with very, very quickly. 
and then everybody goes home. So, but so that that's Hollywood not versus real life. Yeah, but that's not very exciting. So, you know, and we all know. Here's the interesting thing about the Batman Superman fight. People for years, I've been having this conversation with them about. Um, people hear that Batman and Superman fight, and they go, "Well, that's ridiculous. Of of course, Superman's going to win." They're comic book characters. Well, <laughs> but so there's this this debate over who would uh, win, Batman or Superman. And if if Superman just walks up and clocks Batman with all his strength, he's going to kill him. Fight's over, fight's done. Of course Superman's going to win. But people forget that Superman at his, at his core, at his heart, is a really good guy. He's a good guy. He's an honest guy. He's very true. He's not deceitful. He's a very straight-up character. Batman, while a good guy, is kind of a tricky, unlawful guy who's willing to lie and cheat and he's willing to stack the deck, and people forget that going into a fight. So, mm -hmm. you know, when it comes down to it, yeah, Superman, if we're, we're talking about a, a, real, a, a real unreal situation, Superman's going to kill him. But because of the circumstances, you know, it, it, becomes, it becomes believable that Batman could actually beat him because Batman's going to pull every trick in the book, and, and Clark Kent's going to try and be a good guy, and, you mm -hmm. know... Good guys don't win against Batman. They just don't. <laughs> exactly. So. Yeah, it's it's true. I ha I did actually hear that one person actually did say to me, "Well, the Superman versus Batman is not very realistic." I'm like, exactly. It's a comic book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They're not real people. <laughs> yeah. Gotta dial it back there a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but you know, there's, and I think the thing for me is there's still an internal logic. And I think maybe that's one of the things going back to like Zack Snyder's films is give me some logic. Give me, give me some, if you're going to build this world, then develop a logic for that world and make things work within that world. It may not be real, but it has to be real within the world that you create. So if you're going to lay down rules, don't turn around and break them five minutes later because it's convenient. And I think within like the DC universe, People take it very seriously, and and yeah, it's 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 ridiculous. It's they're not real. The, this thing would never happen. But within that universe, it's it, it it can be taken very seriously. And I think that's one of the things about the Dark Knight Returns is that I did try to take it seriously as far as that universe was concerned, and and that's what I felt we'd been missing up to now was whoever had been doing it up to now wasn't taking it seriously. They, they were playing by their own rules, they were doing their own thing, and they weren't living and working within that universe that had been set up. So, you know. You know, I can yeah, listen that, to that you I guys go on for yeah. another four or five hours about this stuff. <laughs> I mean, it's fascinating, but oh, no. we're getting to the point where we've got to wrap, kind of wrap up the show now. We have another show coming up in about five minutes. So I wanted to get your, your final thoughts. And, you know, you talked a little bit about some of your other projects that you have coming up with Jason's Western. Is Jason's Western the next, like, immediate project you guys are falling into? It, it is absolutely the the next immediate project, and it's actually already sort of underway. Right. Um, while I was doing Dark Knight Returns, Jason and Nick were writing Retribution. So when Dark Knight Returns was finished, they pretty much had a full script for the Western. So for the last couple of weeks, we've been getting together on a weekly basis 
and working over the script and going over the dialogue and reworking scenes and just trying to make the best script that we can. And we've been doing a little bit of location scouting and a little bit of planning. And then probably starting in January, we'll kick into high gear as far as production is concerned. Now, we'll is this start- going to be feature length or is this uh, going to be a short film? No, this is going to be a feature length Western. All this is right. going to be... Yeah, and, and you know, the closest parallel to it that I could find, um, Jason would probably cite a different film, but to me, it's in, in tone, it's going to be similar to probably Unforgiven. Okay. Um, it's It's got that kind of feel to it. Um, basically, uh, you know, woman's husband gets killed by a couple of bad guys, and, you know, the town the town owner wants to kill them immediately, but the 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 man's wife... The widow, she she wants them to face proper justice, so she wants to take them across state lines to a judge so that they can be judged properly, but the other guy wants to kill him immediately, and the conflict arises, and um, so it's going to be it's going to be a good old fashioned traditional morality play western. Um, it's going to be gritty and dark, and again, very authentic, as authentic as we can make it. I think we've set it in uh, eighteen ninety seven. So, you know, kind of the later era of the Western, but um, as authentic as we can make it. So, And then while we're doing pre-production on that, we'll be working on distribution for Four Color Eulogy. So hopefully within the next few months, we'll be seeing that get released. That would be wonderful. That would be fantastic. And then hopefully <laughs> touring the country with, at conventions with uh, – with Dark Knight Returns. Yeah, if people want to bring me and Gail to a convention, we'll we'll talk about all the Batman stuff they want to talk about. We'll we'll screen the movie. We'll talk about how that how it was made, and just get us there and give us a table. And as long as it don't cost nothing, we'll we'll <laughs> we'll be glad to come out and and do the do the do the Batman show. So- so. Sounds good to me, and I, I do want to thank you both for being here. It was a fantastic show. But ladies and gentlemen, we've got to go. Skywatchers Radio is coming up next on psn-radio.com. Stay tuned. All right, guys, I didn't want to. I didn't want to cut you like that. Oh no, that's yeah, fine. They were, but yeah. they were. You know, I, I didn't want them to. We're, I just can't believe it's it's already eleven o'clock. <laughs> yeah, I know, isn't that crazy? Is, this is this is extra. This is extra. This is extra. Uh, this is extra for the for the pot. We're still recording. This is extra for the uh, for the podcast. So this is kind of a podcast bonus feature. This is a first okay. that I'm trying. We we stopped the we stopped the initial broadcast recording. We had to cut sure. it. We had to cut it short for the next for the next show. But I, if you guys if you guys have a few more minutes, I mean we can we could talk a little bit more because I did have a few more questions. But I need I needed. No, we're good to go. Okay. we're good to go. Okay, cool. So you so before you go for a color eulogy. Now now you're looking we're looking at distribution you said you're working on that what exactly is that going to entail you're going for dvd and uh digital distribution yeah we're we've before we hit the actual distribution we do want to do a couple of um theatrical screenings um some of the music that was in the film which the music is amazing in this movie and there's a couple of bands that are in the Lexington, Kentucky area. So we want to do a screening and like some big event there. Um, this is after the fact that we did screen it for a week in a theater here in St. Louis. It, yeah. Back in April, we did have a week long screening here. Yeah. So. Um, and then um, 
this just came up. There's one of the other musicians is down in the Austin area, and he suggested doing a screening like during South by Southwest, not necessarily part of South by Southwest, but during that same same time period down in Austin, and we'd probably have him come perform and do some of his songs, um, and then a couple of local around around the St. Louis area. There's um, kind of regionally, there's a, a theater chain called B and B, and they've voiced an interest in in us doing some screenings there. So once we get all those taken care of, then yeah, we want to do DVD, have it available on Amazon, have it available for streaming, um, and most likely it'd be Amazon and Vimeo that it'd be available for streaming on, and and uh, we. We would like for someone, we know a couple of small distribution companies that could get the DVD into a few stores, um, maybe some of the retail chains, some of the mom and pop stores, um, maybe try to get it into Redbox. That's a long shot, but maybe. Um, and we're going to try that route. And if that doesn't work or they're not interested in carrying the film or the, the terms of the deal aren't good, then we'll do it ourselves. Um, and the thing with Four Color Eulogy is we don't want to give up on Four Color Eulogy. We don't want to just, you know, you know, just put it aside and move on without exhausting everything. But Four Color Eulogy was done very inexpensively. It was kind of an experiment. Um, so we didn't spend a lot of money making the film. And we've already recouped a little bit of money. And it's not going to take a lot for that film to be profitable. Um so it's kind of an experiment to see how cheaply we can make a film and still turn some kind of a profit on it. So that's we're kind of keeping an eye on a lot of that stuff. Because as much as I love to just be creative and just make films, ultimately it still has to be a business and I can't just keep doing it for, for free. And it would be nice if these small movies that we make would actually start to you know pay the rent and, and all that kind of stuff. So that's our goal is uh, – you know, to, to make these things economically enough and build up enough of an audience that, you know, we can make a reasonable living doing them. So, yeah, I, I have to have to yes. agree with you guys. I mean, that's I, I, I just say it's fantastic that you were able to do your your Batman. And I love hearing that there's a chance we might get more Batman from you. But I mean, if you could make more creative films that are original that you can profit from and you have an audience and it would be. I mean that would be better for you in the long run. I mean, I guess, I guess it's like you'd almost have to sacrifice Batman at that point. Then, if you're gonna, if that's what you're gonna do, because it takes so much time to do these films and right. effort and energy right. and stuff. But I mean, I personally, I hope it all happens. You get to do all the films <laughs> that you want to yeah. do, well, and we get more yeah. Batman films too. That would be great, and you could make all of these people that don't read or don't know the history of Batman that want to complain about the color of his outfit. <laughs> you know, you can, you know, you'll, you'll I think show one of the most for... ridiculous comments. There was this one comment from this one guy. He, he watched the film and his comment was, why are the police officers hats so small? <laughs> that's what he came away with. And I thought, really seriously, that's what you came away with on this film. Um, oh, no. Okay. <laughs> You know, so I answered the question. It was just, it's, you know, fans are funny. People, people are funny. Um, you just, you got to love them. You got to appreciate them. Um, but no, what you said earlier, it'd be nice to do all of it. It would be nice for it all to happen. And it may, it, it may, I mean, we make a good living doing the production in the Midwest and it's fun and I'm happy and, you know, I, I it's, it's a, it's a good production life that we have. Um, it would be nice if we could make all those other things come together 
uh, over time. So, can, can you tell us a little bit about your about your production company that you're using to make all these films, Pirate Pictures? Is there something? Are you tr- actually trying? Are you actually trying to uh, going to be producing other films and stuff? You know, through Pirate Pictures, is there? You know, the, uh, pr- projects that you're not necessarily working on per sure. se, but you know, we get I get at least one, if not two, pitches per week from other filmmakers or writers who have found our information somewhere online and they're asking, hey, I've got this project, would you guys be interested in doing it? And we have so many films of our own, so many ideas of things that we want to do that it's hard to take on complete strangers projects. And then, you know, it's it's hard work and there's, there's the finances that go into making these projects. So, um, it's kind of like, well, do we want to put that time and energy into someone else's project or into one that we've written? The one thing that we have done is we've tried to help other filmmakers with distribution because distribution is one of the hardest things. We learned a lot of hard lessons. Um, Pirate Pictures was first formed in 2003 and it was formed by um, a couple of old high school friends. And the first thing they did was uh, a, a film called Guardian of the Realm. And Guardian of the Realm was actually shot in Los Angeles. Um, I was in L.A. at the time. My friend Ted Smith, who I mentioned earlier, he was the one who directed it. Um, And Bob Clark, who was kind of the guy behind the startup of Pirate Pictures, he was from St. Louis. Um, We relocated Pirate Pictures back to St. Louis um, after Guardian of the Realm was done. Then we did Shadowland, which was the vampire film. And then we just started doing local production. And so... You know, we can do something as small as, you know, a local business uh, and do a like an Internet video for them, for them. Or we do stuff as big as commercials and music videos for local artists. We do a wide range of production. Um, but then as time went on and we started having all these distribution experiences, some of which were just nightmares. I mean, you'd learn a lot of horrible things when you're doing distribution. And there's a dozen ways to get screwed on the money when you're doing distribution. Well, we've worked with a couple of other filmmakers to try and help get their films distributed. And that's been a mixed bag. Some of it we've had some luck with and some of it um, we've not really been able to help them all that much. It's sad. We've we've tried to help them get their films out there. And it's just it's such a crapshoot. And what happened, a sad thing that happened is that the Internet came along and digital technology came along and everybody for a brief period of time said, wow, we're all going to be able to be filmmakers. We're all going to be able to distribute our own stuff. There's going to be so much material out there. We're going to get to see so many new things. And what eventually happened is that the gatekeepers and the businesses figured out how to step in and kind of monopolize it anyway. Yeah, we can distribute our films online, but we don't have the clout that Amazon Prime does or Hulu does. Um Netflix has become such a thing now that Netflix, you know, picks and chooses what it wants. We can't just automatically get our films on Netflix. So the gatekeepers are still there. So instead of, you know, monitoring the VHS or the DVD releases or the cable television releases, now they're sort of in charge of the the online stuff. And when you're facing, you know, Amazon or Netflix, it's it's hard to distribute your own thing. Um, you sell a thousand copies of a DVD and get 10,000 downloads on Amazon, you're a hero. You've done an amazing job. But I remember the days back in, you know, 
the late eighties, early nineties, where you could make a $200,000 exploitation film and release it to VHS and make a million dollars worldwide. That was just what you could do. Um, then even in the early days of DVD distribution, people were just making money hand over fist and the market has changed so, so much that it's like little guys like us or it's Batman versus Superman. And there's very little in between anymore. Um, you know, occasionally you get a small film or a midsize film, but that's more the exception to the rule. Um, but pirate pictures is going to keep making its own stuff. Um, besides the Batman films, I, there's a couple of other feature films I want to do and it's all over the map. Some of it's dramatic, some of it's fantasy, some of it's science fiction. Um, I've got a whole mix of films that I would like to make. Um, and depending on where Batman falls in all of this, um, I'll, I'll do them. I'll do them sometime in the, in the near future until I get too old to do it or until I injure myself doing Batman, <laughs> you know, oh, no. yeah, yeah, and then you'll be, then you'll be in trouble. <laughs> Those yeah. Batman injuries. No, I'll be the man. I'll be the sad man, man. Yeah, the sad man. Okay. Well, you know what? I guess, I guess we can go ahead and conclude now the, the bonus, uh, the added bonus material, the last 10 minutes of bonus material I wanted to add to the show for tonight. And, uh, Sure. Again, I do want to thank you guys for coming on, and I'm going to definitely be back in touch with you when I've had a chance to see Four Color Eulogy. Uh, me, and, me and Victoria definitely want to yes, have you back definitely. on because, you know, it's like like I said at the beginning, we did that we did that show, you guys talked about it, and then we didn't see it. So, yeah, that'll, that'll have to happen soon. Zod, when was that? Had we had we finished? Uh, uh, hold the film on, let me, let, me, we, let me get the date for you. I'll, I'll get the date. Hold on. No, you were you were in the middle of filming, I think. Yeah, okay. it, was, it was going on. The filming was going that on. That sounds I right. Saying, I can uh, uh, in a moment. I'll be able to tell you the exact date that we uh, that we did the show. I have just have to pull it up on my website here. Uh, yeah, and once it's available to the public, then that would be a great time to do a show about it, so that when people hear about it, that there's actually a place they can go to get it. Oh yeah, I have, and that would be perfect, definitely. And when the show is over, shoot Gail a Facebook message with your address and Victoria's address, and probably not this week because we're busy during the days. But the next week before Christmas, we'll shoot a copy off in the mail to both of you, so you can check it out. Um, and, and, and finally get to see it. Oh, you know what's interesting? Oh, that would be so awesome. It'll be interesting to see the visual differences and styles between Four Color Eulogy and Batman. Because honestly, Four Color Eulogy, when I finished that, because I my primary duty on, on Four Color was directing and cinematography. I did the editing too, but really it was all done in the directing and the cinematography. Four Color Eulogy gave me the confidence to actually do Batman. And you may not think they're related, but when you see the visual style of Four Color Eulogy and how we used color and just the cinematic quality of the shots in Four Color Eulogy, I felt so good about Four Color Eulogy, I came off that film and said, I can do Batman. I, I'm confident I can do Batman now. So I launched right out of Four Color Eulogy and right into Batman. Because, yeah, because you started writing right after you finished. Yeah, literally I finished Four Color Eulogy and started writing Batman immediately. So there's there's some subtle visual parallels between the two, but um, yeah, Four Color Eulogy gave me the confidence to actually finally do the Batman film, um, if that makes sense. And, so. and the actual date of the interview that we did was on July 8th, 2014. So it has, so we been, been, so it has been two years. Yeah, and we would have been in the middle of filming then because... 
what we filmed from June to August. Yeah, June to August. And then we spent, you know, roughly probably a year. Like we had the film ready and it screened publicly like in November of 2014. But that was like a rushed work in progress for the St. Louis International Film Festival. Then we shortened it, tightened it up a little bit. And then we went into sort of more detailed audio work in early 2015 but it wasn't until about august of 2015 that the film was really 100 percent done then it took us you know like another six months to get the theatrical screenings lined up we did the week of theatrical um that was earlier this year april of 2016 and we've been just sort of kind of figuring out the next pieces since then so the film's only really been done done a little over a year um, but we would like to get it out on DVD soon. We don't want to lose all the momentum that we got. Um, we don't want to lose, you know. And we've been holding off on a lot of publicity and a lot of interviews with, for Four Color because we didn't want to blow it too soon. We want to make sure it's available for people <coughs> to get. That was one of the things about Shadowland is before Shadowland went out on DVD, we played at about 20 festivals worldwide. We went to a bunch of conventions. We did a bunch of interviews, and we did a ton of publicity and then probably a good year or more went by before it actually hit DVD. So I feel like we sort of burned out a lot of our PR early. Um, and, and honestly, festivals are great, but unless it's like Toronto or Sundance where you're going to get a deal, um, that's just box office that somebody else gets. So for Four Color Eulogy, we decided to do the local festival and beyond that, we didn't submit it to festivals because if it wasn't, like I said, if it wasn't going to get into a festival like if it wasn't going to go to the Cannes Film Festival and get offered a million dollar distribution deal, there was no sense in doing it because that was just a bunch of people who'd get to see it and that money wouldn't end up in our pockets. Not to sound mercenary about <laughs> it, but yeah, I think about all the festival screenings that people paid for for Shadowland and I think, God, if we'd gotten all the festival money, we probably would have recouped our budget right there. So, mm. yeah, so. Yeah, that would be, that, uh, that, make, that makes a whole lot of sense. I mean... You guys, I'm just I'm just hoping that you guys get all the success in the world out of Four Color Eulogy because it sounds like a beautiful film. So I'm looking forward to it it's, still. And we're really really proud of it. It really turned out well. I, I'll be looking forward to your reactions. I really will. I don't remember when we did the interview before if we were at the point, but when when we had done so many of the the read throughs and the rehearsals, I was like, well, this is really good. I like this story a lot. But it wasn't until we were actually on set. And the the actors really stepped into their characters. That I was like, oh my god, I love this movie. <laughs> so, and then you know, watching it on the big screen and just watching it a week in a row, you know, every night. It, yeah, it's still such a good film, and it's yeah. it's really relatable, which I think is really cool. That even though it's about comic book geeks, they're real people with real problems. It's real life, and. I think that a lot of people are going to be able to relate to this this film. Yeah, yeah. Sounds, what she said <laughs> sounds sounds great. Okay, guys. Well, again, thank you very much. This this was fantastic. Thank oh, you. Thank you again for having us on. Yeah, we, this we, was fun. Yeah, we really did enjoy it too. Yeah. Awesome. Good thank you. night, everyone.